The sermon text is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Last Sunday, we considered the first seven verses of this chapter, which describe Jesus' birth. And we noted from those first seven verses that Luke records how Jesus was born at the right time. He was born into this world at God's appointed time in history, and he was born in order to accomplish the work that the Father gave him to do. So Jesus was born at the right time, but we also noted that Jesus was born in the right place. He was born in Bethlehem, the very town that the prophet Micah had spoken about 700 years before he had foretold that the Messiah would be born in that very town. And thirdly, we noted that Jesus was born in an ordinary way, that he had a miraculous conception, but he had an ordinary birth. He was born into humble circumstances. He was born to a poor family. And his ordinary birth revealed his true humanity, that he is like us in every way we read in the scriptures, yet without sin. He is bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. And Luke now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he continues his reporting of the events that took place that night, reporting now especially about heaven's reaction to Jesus' birth. Because as we noted in those first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, Jesus' birth uh, seemed rather anticlimactic, we might seem. Those events seemed uh, rather ordinary. Remember, Joseph and Mary were forced to go to Bethlehem because of some Roman legislation. Mary, she was very pregnant. She made the 90-mile journey with Joseph. And while they were there, she gave birth in what we would say today were unsanitary conditions. You know, all of that seems uh, rather ordinary stuff for that day and age. But now what Luke does in verses 8 through 14 is he, we might say, draws the curtain back so that we see the spiritual realities that are going on in heaven. We see that actually what's going on is not very ordinary, but this is extraordinary because what is happening on that night is that what God had promised in the old covenant that he would send a savior was all coming to pass. And the angels had declared to Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 1, it was all coming to pass. It was all being fulfilled. So now with these verses, we read about this glorious angelic announcement to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ 
the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see that these angels that night were the first to declare Jesus' birth. What we see in the text is that Luke tells us that at first only one angel appeared to the shepherds out in the fields. And that one angel, who was probably the angel Gabriel, the same angel who had earlier spoken to Zechariah and to Mary, this angel appeared to the shepherds, and we read in our text that they were filled with great fear. You know, this is the same reaction that many people in the Bible have when they are encountered by angels. Fear. Why fear? Well, if we look at verse 9, we see that the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. This glory, this glory is the brightness and the splendor of the Lord. It refers to the light of God's presence. This glory is spoken about in the Old Testament. It's the glory that covered Mount Sinai when Moses met with God on the mountain. It's the same glory that filled the tabernacle with dazzling light. And so, you know, as we consider Luke 2 and this scene, consider the fact that it was night, there was darkness all around, it was just the shepherds and their flocks, and all of a sudden, it was a bright light, it was dazzling, it was radiant, it was full of splendor, and we read that the scene continued to intensify as one angel was then joined by an army of other angels who were praising God and together saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. A glorious sight to behold. Every word that we read here about this angelic announcement to the shepherds is important. But this morning, I want us to consider uh, verse 11 of this text in particular. Verse 11 reads, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In that verse, the angel was describing Jesus, the baby who was just born, this baby who was wrapped in simple cloths and who was placed in a feeding trough. And I want us to notice in verse 11 that the angel uses three different titles to describe Jesus, that he is Savior, that he is Christ, and that he is Lord. Each of these titles reveals something about Jesus' person and work. So we see first that the angel declares that Jesus is Savior. When we read this text and when we hear that Jesus is our Savior, you know, some of us might take for granted that he is our Savior, especially those of us who were raised in the church or who perhaps have been Christians for some time. Because, you know, most non-Christians 
if they simply heard that Jesus is the Savior, they might naturally ask, uh, who is he saving? Uh, Why do we need to be saved? I didn't even know that I needed to be saved. It's a a bit like uh, walking down uh, the street in a big city and somebody handing you a a life jacket, right? Uh, You might say, thanks, but no thanks. Why? Well, because we're in the middle of the city. There's no deep water around. I, I really don't feel like I need this life jacket. So in order for us to appreciate that Jesus is our Savior, friends, uh, we need to understand what we are saved from. We need to understand the very fact that we need a Savior. The Bible says that Jesus saves us from our sins, and more specifically that he saves us from God's wrath for sin. We know this is necessary because of Adam's uh, first sin. We refer to it as the original sin. And the sins that we commit on a daily basis, because of these things, God's anger and his wrath burns against us. The Apostle Paul clarifies the gospel by explaining to us what we need to be saved from when he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, that we wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul very clearly tells us here that we need to be saved from the wrath to come, the wrath of God against sin. The wrath of God that we read in the Bible will be unleashed against sinners by Jesus' righteous judgment on the last day. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, explained it this way. He said, what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from God. Not from kidney stones, not from hurricanes, not from military defeats. Every human being needs to be saved from God. The last thing in the world the unrepentant sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. But in the glory of the gospel, there is one uh, that God has provided, the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. That in Jesus Christ, God saves us from himself, from the wrath that is to come. And God, loved ones, God begins the process of salvation by first revealing to us that we need a Savior, by opening our eyes so that we might see our sin and we might therefore long for a Savior. You know how he does this is he does it through his moral law and he does it through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that all of a sudden we feel that we are drowning under the weight of our sins. We feel that we are drowning and then we are given that life jacket. You know, when God then gives us that life jacket, when he gives us Christ, we cling to him with all our might because we finally realize that we need him so desperately that without him we will perish. God reveals our sin and in a gracious work, he drives us to the only one who can save us from our sins. 
It's very clearly explained to us in the Bible in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said to Joseph, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus is uh, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. And so when this name is given to, uh, to the Son of God, it literally means that God saves. God will save through this one whom he has sent. So when the angel spoke to Joseph and said, you shall call his name Jesus, he told him specifically why. For he will save his people from their sins. Dear loved ones, this is why God sent us Christ, because we needed a Savior. The theologian D.A. Carson, he puts it this way. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had noted that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. How did Jesus save us? He saved us by bearing God's wrath for us. That judgment that was ours was placed upon him on the cross. And the Bible teaches us that when we confess our sins and we trust in Christ, we become children of God. We are cleansed from all our sin, from all our unrighteousness, that in Christ our salvation is then eternally secure. We receive that promise that we read in Psalm 103, that God has cast our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. The angel that night declared to the shepherds that Jesus was the Savior. The angel also declared, secondly, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ means um, anointed one. It's from the Hebrew word mashach, which means to anoint. It's, we get the word Messiah from that uh, Hebrew word. And in order for us to fully understand this title of Christ, what it means, we have to look back to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, people uh, were anointed when they were called by God to be prophets, priests, or kings. Um, Israel's prophets, priests, and kings were, we might say they were go-betweens. They were uh, mediators between God and his people. God had appointed these offices in order to, to um, mediate between him and the whole nation of Israel. We know that the prophets spoke from God to the people. They brought God's word uh, to the people. That's why often 
prophets, when we read the Old Testament, they have that familiar phrase, thus says the Lord. Priests, they spoke from the people to God. They did this by offering sacrifices to God on on behalf of, of Israel. They were the ones who interceded for God's people. Excellent example of this is what we read in Leviticus chapter 16. We read about all that Aaron, the high priest, needed to do on the Day of Atonement because of Israel's sin. He was acting as that mediator between God and Israel. So we have prophets, priests, and kings. Kings ruled Israel in God's name and under God's authority. Kings like Saul, David, and Solomon. God anointed these uh, prophets, priests, and kings in order to accomplish their role or their office. And the anointing uh, usually involves some sort of ceremony in which the person that was being called to the office had oil poured on their heads, sometimes smeared um, on their heads. And, you know, what was significant about a person being anointed with oil is that it showed two very clear things that were taking place um, in this person. First, it was a declarative act, this anointing, this pouring on of oil over a person was first a declarative act. You know, it was a physical way that God was showing that this person was chosen out of all of Israel in order to be a prophet or a priest or a king, in order to act according to this office that they were being called to. Um, now, in our culture, you know, we don't anoint with oil. I know that um, certain oils are becoming popular nowadays, right? But uh, we don't have these kind of ceremonies where we anoint people with oil in public places. Uh, but we do have uh, other kinds of ceremonies that have a significant, uh, similar declarative um, significance. For example, when a new president of the United States takes, presi- uh, takes office, they take the presidential oath of office. Right? And it's a very physical, dramatic thing as they are there before the nation and the president then uh, raises his right hand, and he places his left hand on the Bible. At this point, he's the president-elect. And all of this is a declarative act. It's a declarative act to that man who's being installed into his office. It's a declarative act to our nation and and to the watching world that's watching on TV that this is the president of the United States. And it was a similar thing with anointing in the Old Testament. It was God's declarative physical act showing all the people This is my prophet, this is my priest, this is my king whom I have chosen. So it was a declarative act. Secondly, anointing in the Old Testament was an equipping act whereby the gifts needed to fulfill the office were given by God to the person. We think about these offices of prophet, priest, and king. They had huge responsibilities. It's very uh, stressful for, for many of these these men as they were fulfilling these roles in redemptive history. And you know what God was doing is he was using the external sign of the oil being poured on them or smeared on them. He was using this physical sign to confirm to them what he was doing internally in their hearts and minds. 
he was working by his Holy Spirit internally to prepare them and to equip them for, for this office that uh, they were fulfilling. It's like uh, for us, we might liken it to the sacraments. Right? The sacraments are physical. They're very tangible signs of something that God is doing inwardly um, in our hearts. So when the angel, taking these two ideas of anointing being a declarative act and anointing being an equipping act, when the angel declared that Jesus is the Christ that night, that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, no, this was a declarative act from heaven. It was a declarative act from God himself. God was announcing through this heavenly messenger that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. That Jesus was sent by God and he was also equipped by the Holy Spirit with everything that was necessary for him to accomplish our salvation. Jesus himself said that he was the Christ, that he was the anointed one sent from God. And he did this at the very start of his ministry. It's alluded to this morning uh, as part of our first reading that in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, we read about how Jesus uh, stood up to read in the synagogue, as was his custom. In Luke chapter 4, we, we read that the scroll that he unrolled was the scroll of Isaiah. And he read from what we would refer to as uh, Isaiah 61. We read in Luke 4, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why do you think that their eyes we're fixed on Jesus. Got to get the scene, the tension. Jesus has just read Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah, about the anointed one whom God would send to Israel. And now all in the synagogue were waiting to see what Jesus would say after he had just completed the reading. And in verse 21 of Luke 4, we read, Jesus said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus there declaring, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one whom God has declared is the Messiah through the angel who has been equipped with everything necessary to accomplish salvation. So loved ones, as we consider this uh, and the importance of, of what it means that Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, and he is the anointed one, the Heidelberg Catechism explains to us the significance of how the Lord Jesus fulfills each one of these roles. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 31. This is a, a reformed summary of our faith. It was written in 1563. The question is, um, why is Jesus called, 
Christ that is anointed? The answer is because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit, right? referring to that equipping act, to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Right? He has told us everything necessary for salvation. He is our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. He has fully accomplished our salvation. And he is, says, our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Loved ones, Christ is our Savior. He is the anointed one. And third, we read that the angel ascribes the fact that he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Read verse 11 again from our passage this morning. The angel says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This title, Lord, is used to describe God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and it means sovereign or, or ruler. And I want you to note, as we, we think about the significance of this title, that Jesus is Lord, I want you to note the significance of who is declaring this. It's an angel that's making this declaration about Jesus. This angel is saying that the baby that is born in Bethlehem, swaddling cloths, is wrapped in them. He's in, in a manger, in a feeding trough, and the angel is declaring that he is Lord. He's not just a baby, but he is God incarnate. And, you know, we have similar declarations from God the Father about Jesus' identity throughout the scriptures. This is one example of heaven's declaration, of God's declaration of Jesus' true identity that he is Lord. Another example we find is at Jesus' baptism. In Mark chapter 1, beginning of verse 9, we read, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Who is making that declaration, loved ones? It's God. God the Father is making this true declaration of the identity of his Son. We also see a similar declaration at Jesus' transfiguration. This is in Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 2. That after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. It means he was changed uh, before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, 
And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. We see that for that brief, intense moment, the light and the declaration from heaven, this is my beloved son. You see, loved ones, the beginning of Jesus' ministry and throughout Jesus' ministry, you have this attestation from heaven, this declaration from God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the very Son of God. This is important for us to to consider this morning because, you know, this Christmas season, like every Christmas season, and this happens during the Easter season as well, as people begin asking the question, who is Jesus? There's a lot of even secular magazines and and, um, things on, on like historical shows on cable asking this very question and trying to figure out the answer. And, you know, usually people... As they ask that question and seek to answer it, uh, some answer it by just denying uh, Jesus' existence outright. Um, and some, instead of denying his ex- existence outright, some affirm that he was a historical person, but they deny that Jesus is God. They'll say something like, well, he was just a really good teacher. He was a, a great moral man, somebody that is worthy to be followed, but not necessarily worthy to be worshipped. Beloved ones, I want you to notice that all of these are opinions that people have, that people give. Right? This is their opinions. This is their ideas. But what we find in the Bible is not man's idea, man's opinion of who Jesus is. We have God's own revelation, his own declaration to us of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. See, there's no, there's no speculation here. There's no question here. It's a statement. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. Directly from heaven, it is spoken to us. And so I want to ask you this morning, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The Lord asked his own disciples this question uh, during his earthly ministry. In Mark chapter 8, beginning of verse 27, we read that Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, here are people's opinions. Uh, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. But Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Loved ones, notice all the different opinions that people had about Jesus, even in his own time. But the Lord Jesus confronted his disciples and asked, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Friends, to give an answer that is anything less than Savior, Christ, Lord, is to deny all that the Scriptures teach us about Jesus. But to know Jesus, loved ones, to know Jesus is to know Him, to know the one true God, to know Him by 
the sweetest name that is on earth, the name that is above all names. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your Son we have a Savior. We have a prophet, priest, and king. And we have a Lord. Thank you also for the many other ways that Christ has made himself known to us, that he is also our shepherd, our brother, and our friend. Lord, we pray that you would bless us in the coming week as we gather with family and friends to celebrate the Incarnation. Grant us peace and joy, and we pray that you would also give us opportunities to share the good news with others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.